This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by SafePal. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. It was kind of a no-brainer saying, okay, so what we have here is the ability to from a you know have third-party verification on the supply chain, but we also saw that there was a distribution chain. It kind of turned the Cardano blockchain into uh, nearly like a, you know a platform. Right, super excited to be back here. I hope everyone had a really good weekend. What is up? Good morning, good afternoon. I am Charlie Shrem, your host, and you're listening and watching to another epic episode of Untold Stories, where you and I together, through bull and bear markets, we take the time and we understand deep topics, uh, things that we really want to um, be able to, uh, I think what I'm realizing is that everything that we're going to be doing in the future is going to exist on a, a blockchain. And what I mean is that right now we have the option to use crypto for cool things in dApps and tokenization. But I really do think in the very near future, within 10 years, every year, it's almost going to be a necessity that our applications that we're building now on various blockchains across the world are going to be the default of how things are going to be uh, done. And so we're excited to talk about that. We have a great guest today, Frederick Grigard. This is Untold Stories. Uh, Frederick, you're the CEO of the Cardano Foundation's adoption strategy. You know, you um, you came from a, a crazy world uh, of building out OTC exchanges, liquidity pools, high frequency trading. You work with banks, infrastructure providers. You've worked with um, uh, different type of big data, DLTs, blockchain. You've been in the space a long time. Um, and you've kind of settled here and and helping um, uh, one of the top five, you know, blockchains, one of the most well-known blockchains started by a good friend of mine, Charles Hodgkinson and, and his team and everyone. Um, and you're, you know, kind of leading, you're like the chief ambassador, if you will. Thanks, thanks for coming on the show. And like, is that what you kind of consider yourself, the chief ambassador? Well, that's that's an excellent question. I haven't thought so much about it. I, I thought about maybe the the chief enabler, the <laughs> enabler, and giving the power back to to the people who really need it. Um, I think there's a lot of really great ambassadors out there. I think I'm probably more of an enabler. That's amazing. I like that. What's your? I mean, what's your background? What What did I miss? Well, yeah, that's a that's a. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I quit the army. Um, I, I did quite some years in the army and in and, and, and a part of long range reconnaissance. I went into business school and I had a really amazing lecture uh, around economy. And I really wanted to uh, go out and express my view. So I walked into uh, my local bank uh, and I said, I would like to buy some oil futures. And, and the teller just looked at me and started laughing and said, you know, you you, that you can't do that. You are not an institutional investor. You don't have the credentials. You don't have the education and so on. And I said, but I have a view and I want to, I want to express it. And uh, yeah, I was, I was really not allowed to do that. So I, I really started my journey on democratizing access to capital markets because I thought it was extremely unfair that, you know, only an elite class of people had access to express their views on their own finances. So that's, a, that's actually how I entered capital markets. Um, so really worked a lot around, you know, education, giving farmers the ability to hedge their harvest, giving, you know, small and medium-sized uh, companies an ability to do uh, currency hedging, uh, you know, moving into, 
you know, figuring out how can we actually level the playing field. So it's not just the large institutional investors who has the, you know, the information asymmetry who allows them to do a trade or the access to do a trade or the tools to do a trade, but really how can everybody actually have access to this world? And there were some tough learnings there uh, in, in that process. I mean, that's, tell me, tell me how that would work uh, a potential token for farmers to hedge their harvest. Uh, th this was way before blockchain. Um, so there was no tokenization at that time. It was really just, you know, futures contracts and, you know, classical institutional or capital markets instruments. And, you know, what was really odd to me was that the, the, the farmers, they had a lot of, they were being overbanked really, right? Because they had a lot of, they, they were used to taking risk, right? If you think about it, they basically took all of their money and they put it in their, you know, into grains, which they put in the, into the fields, right? And then yeah. they were waiting, you know, five to six months, and then hopefully they got a return, which was bigger than the investment. So a lot of the bankers that were really out there and, you know, pushing different, very aggressive strategies. And the farmers was, you know, kind of used to, to taking risk, but it was always through an intermediary and always through a person who had access to the system. And there was, you know, a certain you know extent of bias right so the banker was selling a product which was good for the bank but you know not always as good for sure, the yeah. for the farmer and and now i kind of thought about it differently i thought you know if the farmer is able to to wield you know large machines and you know have employees and be responsible for animal and animal welfare and so on why shouldn't they be able to also uh, you know, on a, on, a, on a daily basis when they look out on the fields to start taking some decisions about their finances and around the, the harvest in a, in, a, in a better way. Um, so I actually, you know, <laughs> I put on a suit and uh, I started up my car and I drove around from farm to farm and I met these farmers in the, in the barns, basically. And <laughs> we were talking about, you know, access and hedging strategies and, you know, currencies and, you know, how they could basically take back you know, the, you know, the ability to control their own finances after their view and how they could challenge the banks and actually, you know, uh, you know, be master in their own house. I've heard this like kind that. of problem a lot, like the, the last mile of person that would that need that if they had access to capital markets, then, you know, everyone in between would have the same access too. it's like an equal playing field. And what that means is not just the ability to like, get a mortgage, but potentially tokenize or liquefy or access the same type of liquidity products uh, to, to earn the same type of yield, invest in the same type of businesses that are a lot safer that only certain like hedge funds and certain type of capital, you know, the, the wealthier, the super, super 1%. And so like farmers have to spend a lot of money because they're only harvest once a year. They have to spend a lot of money. Like what are the, what are they spending right now in order to be able to have some, some way to so what are they doing borrowing against their future harvest right now and they're spending a lot of money for that that's more or less how it worked back then i mean this is about 15 16 years ago or something like that now right times moves fast right um but yeah that's actually how the business model was right they, they took a they took a loan against the real estate and against the future harvest right and then they they basically uh you know, put everything out in the fields into the control of, of, of Mother Earth and, and their hands and their ability from, a, you know, knowledge often passed down from generations to generations. Yeah. But suddenly what happened was that, the, you know, uh, new products emerged, which was not as, let's say, as, as transparent as the old ones, right? And 
And, you know, you're suddenly finding yourself in a situation before the Lehman crisis and so on, where some of these structured products were so advanced that even, you know, with a PhD in finance, you were actually struggling a little bit to understand the risk return ratio. And, you know, is it really capital guaranteed? And what does that really mean? And who is guaranteeing what? And I think what we saw sort of in the in the first or uh, the larger financial crisis at least in my lifetime was that you know the financial markets were really skewed to one side and it really protected one side of the players and um, when we went out on the other side of the financial crisis unfortunately what we saw was that most of the people who caused the financial crisis were still in the game they got bailed out and so on but the the average investor or the average uh, business owner they were not bailed out and um, I got really angry about that. And then, uh, you know, um, I kind of changed my view a little bit on, you know, is it really about democratizing trading or is it more around creating an equal playing field hmm. for the whole world population? And then uh, that was about the time where Bitcoin came out. And um, at that time, I was really into the infrastructure. So I was building infrastructure for bank and asset managers. And um, I started to basically go up to uh, to the owners of the bank and I said, you know what, we need to be a part of this new blockchain revolution. Who yeah, how do they take currency. that? <laughs> <laughs> Not very well. <laughs> basically, uh, I had a long discussion with the, with the legal and the compliance department and the European Central Bank at that time issued a couple of very straight warnings around the Silk Road and around the usage of Bitcoin. Uh, and it was very hard for them to see any kind of positive in it. So I actually was told that if if I was continuing that path, then I could not stay in the bank. Um, so what I did instead was I used my spare time to help uh, startup companies in the blockchain space to get banked. Because most of these companies could not get a, a regular bank because they were so scared about, you know, um, you know, this European Central Bank uh, statements and papers was out at that time. But what they really needed was just currency hedging. They really just needed normal corporate banking. It was, you know, none of the banks at that time were able to, you know, take custody of a Bitcoin or anything like that. So it was really about, you know, you had, you know, you had a dollar income and you were paying salaries in Swiss francs or in euros. And it was nearly impossible to get banks. So I was helping fintech companies yeah, to, to get what banking connections and, and helping some startups to, to have a product to market fit. Um, so that was really interesting. How did you uh, end up at the Cardano Foundation? Yeah. So I at one point in my career in banking, I noticed that there was a problem. And the problem was that I was trying to put technology into banks and I was trying to ensure that the banks became more profitable. The clients got more happy. They got more decision rights. The bankers had the ability to guide their clients uh, in a better way. Um, and I thought everybody would be happy. But uh, look and behold, none of the banks really accepted this you know, new set of, of technologies and new set of ways to, to make better products uh, for their clients. And I couldn't understand it. And I kept walking into this door that this was uh, due to regulation or this was due to audit requirements. And um, I thought, okay, what do you do if if you don't really 100% understand regulation and audit requirements? You join the best audit and uh, and law firm in the world. So I basically contacted PwC and I told them that they needed to hire me because I definitely had a skill set they didn't have. And I needed to be working together with the best auditors and the best uh, lawyers in the world. 
And they laughed at me because, you know, if you have a, a pretty good career and you want to join a, a big four company without being a, you know, a licensed auditor or, a, you know, a lawyer, uh, <laughs> there's not much use for you. Right. So I had to come in with a with a solid business case. And it took me over, I think, about one and a half years to convince PwC to hire me. And I went through one business meeting after the other where all these, uh, you know, uh, partners were sitting and uh, I was, you know, had to do presentations. And in one of those, I kind of changed uh, my tact and I said, you know what, this is what I'm going to bring to the table. And a part of that was a list of, I think it was about 10, 15 companies where I said, these companies, they would get so much out of the combined forces of a worldwide execution partner who really truly understands third-party audit and security audits, but also understands the regulatory space. And on that list was actually Cardano. Uh, because I noticed that Cardano was doing some really good things around the, uh, you know, the financial systems and around rethinking blockchain. But I also noticed that it seemed to me that something was wrong in the execution. So uh, I basically had Cardano there and it took me many years to be able to actually meet your good friend Charles Hodgkinson and the team and be able to actually convince them that I had something to offer uh, as a consultant, as a representative from PwC back then. Um, and then uh, at a certain time, I stood and had built up the uh, the blockchain, the European blockchain practice of, of PwC, where we did the first, uh, you know, crypto banks, uh, and we did the first implementation of all coins in a banking space and so on. And I was looking at, you know, you know, changing tact and changing um, speed. And um, yeah, you know, it was quite obvious that Cardano was one of the opportunities I had really to uh, to do that. And Cardano actually... Is definitely yeah. like push forward in, in that. Yes, for sure. And whether you think about the impact of the 20th century energy infrastructure on our atmosphere and climate or the impact of large technology platforms on our society, or we are seeing technology create new problems as unintended consequences. I mean, these dramatic changes to the human brain and behavior, which we basically, or I've been you know, monitoring the last 15 years and I've been seeing a lot also in the trading space, and the invasion of privacy, the loss of work across all elements with robots and automatization and workforce technologies, who really were intended to provide real benefits to society. They're actually causing a lot of harm. And when I stood there with you know, a lot of investment banking experience, and then I suddenly understand that it was not the audit and it was not the regulatory space who was hindering these banks for adopting what are these things, but it was really the humans. It was how we work and the cultural barrier was my really? learnings in PwC. Um, so therefore, you know, it was kind of, I wouldn't say it was a no-brainer. We, we but... You think the industry wasn't like talking the talk and walking the walk? Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, when you kind I of look at that. this, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, middle management in many of the banks, they're, they're just humans. And what they do is they protect the team of people, of individuals who is vertically specialized in moving data from one spreadsheet to another having two people checking that, right? And doing some kind of verification that the numbers are correct. And then they say to senior management, you know what, we cannot optimize that because, you know, I'm looking at a team of, you know, 20, 30 people who all have families and they're all in an age or maybe don't have an interest in, in, in getting further education. I mean, I'm not talking about everybody here, but I'm talking about a very large chunk of, you know, are we of, of people here who is, who's, they don't, they don't have the motivation. They don't have the motivation, yeah. nor do they have the, you know, incentives 
to learn something new or to retire themselves in their role and take on a new role. Guys, I am so excited to talk about our newest presenting sponsor, SafePal. SafePal is an all-in-one solution. You got a beautiful hardware wallet. You have this amazing fireproof cipher. You got a mobile wallet, an extension wallet similar to MetaMask. You're talking about an all-in-one solution for all of your crypto needs. Founded in 2018, SafePal is a Binance Labs-backed, Singapore-based company, uh, the venture arm, where their mission is to make crypto secure and simple for everyone. You got cross-chain swapping, trading services, and more. SafePal supports over 40 different blockchains. I mean, check this out. Look at this. If you back up your private seed in this beautiful metal SafePal backup here and you keep it in your safe, fires or water or nothing degrading over time, you should not be backing up your crypto on pieces of paper. I mean, look at this. Look at the S1 here. It's so cool. This is the hardware wallet. You're talking, I'm used to using the Trezor or the Ledger wallet, but SafePal is a lot better because not only do you get the hardware wallet and the backup cipher, but you also get the mobile wallet, the uh, extension on your Google Chrome or whatever Firefox you use. So it all works together. You don't have to worry about man in the middle attacks and everything like that. You can go to safepal.com, use the coupon code Charlie, and you'll get any of these amazing products the extension wallet is free, the mobile wallet is free, the hardware wallet and the backup are really, really well priced. It's all super safe and secure. And I love it. I mean, there's no other way you should be using your crypto than SafePal. Um, we're talking about like open, we're talking about these industries accepting open source software that's like less than 15 years old. So of course, you know, it's so very new. Satoshi invented this beautiful, uh, 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 thing called Bitcoin that we all love today, you know, and then the technology that's come out of that, uh, are we talking about permission versus or permission blockchains? Are they more interested in, in private or public blockchains? Do you think these, some of these industries? So we've seen in the last, maybe five, six, seven years that uh, many of these regulated players, they said, oh, this blockchain might have something. And my board is saying that we need to do some proof of concept. But the, the, the idea that you had to interact with something you don't own, something you don't control, and something you, from a legal point of view, oh. cannot face off with was very tough. So many of these banks, they actually went with a, with a private blockchain. And the conclusion of that was it doesn't work, right? Or, it, or the total cost of ownership is simply too big. So we actually seen a trend in the last year or so that many of the people who started out in the private permission space are now going to a more public space because the platform economics, the security, and also the actual features is much better in the public wow. space. However, That's the problem is the utility token. So when you kind of look at the utility token and you see the volatility we have in the, in the markets right now, and you look at the regulatory uncertainty, for instance, in the US, where a token can be a commodity, it can be a payment, it can be a security, it can be literally everything, right? Uh, and there is you know defragmentation between the states in terms of the graduation, and you see China suddenly saying we don't do any crypto. Then you're suddenly saying, oh, so there's a lot of utility, there's a lot of functions, and and you know I can I can do a lot with the blockchains, but can I then operate in China? Can I then operate in the U.S.? So you're it's a it's a different animal to deal with. 
And that is what we are seeing coming through now that people are saying, actually, there is more value on blockchains than we initially thought. And we are willing to bridge that gap with the utility token based on education and taking some smart choices on, uh, on the risk which is associated with these utility tokens. I mean, what you just said is so brilliant because it explains something that I've been in the back of my head for the past year and a half. And that's that slow, like you said, you said it perfectly, that slow uh, pull towards permission blockchains kind of going to the, you know, to the back burner and very large corporations, uh, you know, uh, from from Disney to Nike to uh, uh, Google to IBM, everyone really, everyone, basically, and even like public private partnerships, governments, uh, NGOs, um, you know, private groups of people, cities, partnering with these public blockchains like like yours, for example, it's such an interesting dynamic. Like, how do they reconcile some of the things that I thought they couldn't reconcile before? Yeah, it, it has really multiple facets, right? So we just partnered with the country of Georgia. And uh, Georgia has a very interesting story because they were part of the Soviet Union. And uh, what many people don't know is that uh, wine production was most likely invented uh, in Georgia. So wine is actually not... Georgian wine, actually. <laughs> yeah. Friends sent it to me. And... I haven't drank it yet. Yeah. And uh, basically... Due to the, you know, when marketing really came around in the 80s and the 90s, right, you know, the ability to market a product and all these kind of things, you know, um, they were basically not a part of that because they were only able to sell the wine in the Soviet Union. So you had really strong brands like Italy and Spain and partly California and other things, you know, building up really strong distribution layers and very big names. But um you know, when, when the country of Georgia then suddenly saw the what the blockchain can do, and we started putting, you know, full batches of wine. So every individual wine bottle on the blockchain, we saw something very specific happening. First of all, they were able to show that the controls and the quality they had from the National Wine Agency and the production could be anchored into the blockchain. Secondly, what we saw was that, you know, the brand you cannot change overnight. But there is a new type of people out there. We, I like to call them blockchain citizens. And they're very wary about what's happening on the internet. They know, you know that deep fakes and fake and you know, all these things is happening, but they're also very concerned about the footprint on Mother Earth. And what we could see on the blockchain was that you know, countries or, or regions or communities who normally would never buy Georgian wine, specifically not on the internet, suddenly started buying Georgian wine. And when they saw that, uh, it was kind of a no-brainer saying, okay, so what we have here is the ability to from a, you know, have third-party verification on the supply chain, but we also saw that there was a distribution chain. It kind of turned the Cardano blockchain into uh, nearly like a, you know, an, a platform, like an eBay for, for wine, because you could suddenly explore metadata and certain things, and you had verification from third parties in there. And, and that actually, you know, allowed them to break away or at least move on some other parameters in the product mix, which you normally, uh, you know, is, is very hard to do without having a lot of funding. So I, I think there's a, there's a lot of aspects to that. Another aspect is, 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 you know, David Goliath, right? So what you have very often is that you have a very dominant player, and then you have a lot of small people and they kind of come together in some kind of a trade alliance or they come together as a community and they want to do something together, but they don't have full trust in each other. And 
normally it would be the big player who has a better infrastructure and more capital. They will say, oh, we will run the servers and we will run the, you know, the quality control and we will do the audit, right? This is brilliant. But, but what then happens is that the small players are like, oh, hold on a second. How do we actually know that the big player is not changing or manipulating the data or the rules for the transactions or something like that? And what we see is that in these public permissionless blockchains, this is the first time that not one giant player has the ability to change the rules as we go along in our collaboration and cannot bully the small players. So it actually creates a, a, an evil, uh, an even playing field, plus it creates the ability for the small players to verify if the rules has been changed, broken, or the data has been manipulated in any kind of format. So in this way, it actually creates the possibility for large players to you know, get trust from multiple players that normally they won't be speaking to, and small players for the first time to trust large players without actually you know, having the fear of being bullied. And I think this creates completely new alliances and completely new ways of solving problems across borders and across cultures. Political parties, you know, governments, when you have like governments fall apart and they have to like redo coalitions and stuff could be like, you know, potential blockchain DAOs or whatever that it's all, all the promises and everything are transparent. It's so cool. Yeah. And then on top of that, depending on your architecture. So one of the things Kedana, we really try and pay emphasis on is to lower the barriers of entry into the Kedana ecosystem. So the way the Cardano protocol is designed is basically designed with security and formal verification in mind. And it's about going slow because it is about representation of value, governance, and identities. But it also gives you the ability wherever you are in the world with an internet connection for a very, very, very low entry fee. So you just need a Raspberry Pi or a Stone Pi. You can actually become a stake pool operator. And what that basically means is that you can, you know, by downloading some free content on the internet, you can use the source code, you can participate in the security of the Cardano protocol, you can pull in your community into that, you can get a passive income, depending on where you are, that might be sufficient, that you can send your schools to, uh, to um, send your kids to school, or you can, you know, participate in the, the local community by having a, an income, which is beyond your local area. And that means that you are bridging a part of the digital divide. It means that you are suddenly connecting to the global economy. It means that you're creating a type of identity by always being able to, to close those blocks and create a transaction history, which then has a value uh, for a part of the systems of the world, right? So it creates a, a type of identity. We cannot call it a national identity, but it creates an identity you actually have a value and it creates a solid value, and not just for your community, but also for the other people uh, who operates in the Cardano network. Well, you so just described, these... oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I was saying what you just described is literally uh, the Byzantine general's problem. You know, so that's literally just what it is. It's it's uh, uh, all you have like a Goliath and you have different parties that don't trust each other. And how do you bring them together? Because now they don't have to trust in another technology in order to, or like another centralized party in order to be like the referee in what they're trying to do, that other party could potentially be like bought off or you don't have full trust in there, you know, insurance product or whatever. But now you, it's just the technology itself doing it. It's so cool. Um, I was That's actually one of the, one of the reasons why we, we, we looked at how do we give 
you know, identity to students. So Kadano is doing a big project in, in, in Ethiopia, which is a little bit of a, a hot potato, right? Because the country is in turmoil, right? But I think what's interesting about uh, identity for students and schools is that you create the freedom to leave the country on a different premises. So normally if you're a refugee, um, from a from a poor country, and you go to a Western country, you might end up, you know, driving a taxi or cleaning the floor somewhere. But if you actually have, you know, third party verified uh, school records that you are a nurse or you're a doctor or whatever you are, and you can verify that on the blockchain, which is immutable and not controlled, but there is the national agencies has written to that. Yeah, you actually are, you know, the value of what you are bringing to the new country who takes you with, you know, open or sort of open yeah. arms is completely different. So it's, it's changing the value proposition of the human lives. Growing up in New York City, I remember as a kid, the we'd always ask the yellow cab driver uh, where they were from, you know, if they if they uh, talked about like kind of their whole background or whatever. And when I was younger, a lot of times they loved talking and things like that. And they would say, yeah, I was a doctor in my old country and now I'm driving this tax. You know, I, I, I totally see that just, and I'm like, why? aren't we living in a world where like that data can be verified or the source can be verified? It doesn't make sense to me. Um, so it's nice to hear that we're kind of moving in that direction. Um, for those, for my listeners who are, and, and myself really too, who are not like as familiar with Cardano as, uh, as we need to be, um, you know, Bitcoin operates off of like the, the proof of work, uh, consensus algorithm, Ethereum just moved to proof of stake from proof of work. Um, Cardano operates a little bit differently. It's a little bit, it's like a, a, a almost like a little bit of like an offshoot of a proof of stake, if you will. Yeah, I mean, so Cardano is a scientific approach to blockchain. And uh, we have some of the most cited papers in the whole crypto uh, cryptography realm. And um, I think that the way I look at it is that Cardano actually invented proof of stake. We are one of the first successful implementations of proof of stake. And the, the way we implement the proof of stake is, is different than, for instance, Ethereum. And the main yeah. difference here is how do you punish evil actors? And this is kind of interesting because this goes back to the concept of do you truly believe that people are good or do you truly believe that people are evil? And in certain, some people call it slashing. And what it really does is that I explained to you before the, the, the notion of, of staking. So on, on Bitcoin and proof of work, the economic scarce resource you're operating with is computing power, which is a derivative of your CPU and electricity, yeah. really. And you're trying to solve a very hard calculation and you protect the network because this is really hard work. It actually, you need to have really economic resources there. On yeah. a proof of stake blockchain, it's actually a, it's a virtual asset which you are optimizing towards. And uh, there's some differences here in proof of stake and how Cardano is, is operated is that it's actually trust. So it's, your, it's how you show trust to stake pool operators by staking your ADA. And now to protect that some of these stake pool operators are not changing the time series and trying to you know, front run a certain transaction or, or in other ways manipulate the system, Many blockchains has this notion of slashing or the ability that your, your stake is basically locked in or that even worse, that your stake can be um, 
withdrawn or, or, or taken away from you. So if you would be a stake pool operator and I was be staking to you to participate in the security of the network and also the governance of the network, yeah. because I'm showing you that I trust you more than I trust somebody else, right? And I trust maybe some of the things you do. But if you do something evil, uh, you my money or my tokens can basically be taken away from me. And that's what slashing is. That's However, Cardano, Cardano believes that there is sufficient community, let's say, call it policing, and sufficient sure. good incentives in the network that we don't need to have that. That actually means that you know, over uh, you know, over seventy percent of 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 Cardano's um, of the tokens is all staked, and there is no ability for a stake pool operator to remove your staking value. And that also means that there is no financial contract going on, because the stake pool operator will never have access to my ADA. Uh, and that means that the network, in a certain way, is built on the you know very secure, and we can mathematically prove that this model works, right? And we are very large, as you said in the start, right? But it also is is built on more optimistic principles and more inclusion and less yeah. punishment than many of the other proof of stake blockchains. The you talk about like what makes a project or a crypto company successful, and a lot of it is like the core principles, like the ethos of like the founder or like the the you know, and even Satoshi in his in his even though he disappeared, like kind of the ethos of the project, and you have um, um, so many so many companies the brian armstrong of coinbase but then you have like jesse of kraken and like they look at kraken as a very successful company because of kind of the, the core values of jesse and you have all these different projects and companies charles has always been about and i every time everyone i talk to at cardano whether it's the foundation or iohk it's like a very academic perspective studying not just people and 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 not just math but also like projecting how things could happen and almost to a point of uh of of studying things way before you launch them and how a lot of other blockchains would just launch things and then come up with ideas and kind of uh experiment in the real world you have taken a very like test net hey we want to make sure we get it right the first time approach which i want to like really stress on that's not the norm that's not the norm at all <laughs> And it might also, it might not be the right way of doing it, but we really think it is. That's your thing. And, yeah. I like and what that. I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say to people specifically on blockchains, because blockchains is a very different animal than open source. So when you look at, at open source in general, what you have is that you have the ability to fork the source code, right? And have, you know, at any given time, thousands of different versions of, of a source code, which you can basically deploy into your infrastructure. Now, the blockchains work differently because what they have is many of them have what we call public source. So you, are, you have the ability to read the source code and to replicate the source code. But the strength is actually not the technology. The strength is the underlying communities um, who basically believe and sacrifice their time and their effort to deploy applications on the network and keep creating transactions who keep securing the network. So... The strength is not so much how good is the technology because yeah. many of us is public source. So we can basically just take the best that we see out there. It's how the Legos are put together and how much of the community support it. The other part, which is really horrible because of this difference and how open source and blockchain work is, is that at any given time, it's, it's nearly only one version of the code who's on mainnet. What that means is that if mainnet goes down, 
all the thousands of companies who today is on Kerano, they have a problem. Now, if there is a bug in a version of some source code on the Linux kernel, it doesn't matter so much that at any given time, there's hundreds of bugs in any kind of version of the Linux source code. Sure. It only matters for your implementation. But in this case, it, it matters for everybody. So one of the, the, the mantras I keep saying to people is, we need to unlearn this design thinking principle, which is move fast and break things. And we, not, we need to start move slower and fix things. And I think, unfortunately, some of our industry has been moving so fast and being so focused on, oh, it doesn't matter if it breaks because then we learn something and we do something else. But what Cardano really is about is how do you represent values, identities, and governance all in one social system? And when we speak about the identities of a person, of a state, or the what we really truly hold you know, to our heart, it should not just be broken. It should not just be, you know, filled with box and, you know, be stolen, right? It is so important that that it actually prevails. And it is also there in 10, 20, and 30 years time. And therefore, I think that at least when you look at the use cases around Cardano, what we, we are trying to show is that moving slower and fixing things is, is a fantastic way to ensure that what you put on chain is things which stays on chain and things who really is near and dear to the human soul and the communities which we love. I, I mean, you're making my heart sing because you're saying everything that I love. Uh, we're out of time, but I really appreciate you coming on, on Untold Stories today. Uh, Frederick Regard uh, of the Cardano Foundation, um, and I'm excited to have you back again soon and to chat uh, about what's been going on. I would love to do that. And a big shout out, we are having the uh, Cardano Summit very soon coming up in a month's time. So we are holding 54 events around the world. There's one in New York as well. Awesome. And there's a big one in, in Lausanne. It's a free event where we celebrate the Cardano ecosystem, the growth, all the architects of the future. But we also invited a lot of skeptics, a lot of companies who never thought about using decentralized applications. And we are hoping to have a really good party uh, where there's a lot of education going on and a lot of use cases are being shown. So go in on our website and have a look at the Cardano Summit, which is coming up here in November. So when we're talking about being like a crypto investor, or if you have a crypto startup and you want to be able to tokenize and securitize your revenue or your business, you should start to look at companies like AngelBlock. AngelBlock is a DeFi protocol aimed at solving issues of fundraising for digital assets and also making the process extremely crypto native. When you're talking about post-raise governance to ensure startups are delivering the, the, the you know what they promise doing and investor capital is actually protected through different voting where your token is actually a vote on-chain vesting cap chain management fully transparent token distribution companies and businesses that come out of angel block are going to be very successful in that sense I feel like it's a lot better than kind of going through individual companies on their own and hopefully trying to like throw things at the wall to see what sticks. So check out angelblock.com, go to their website, sign up for their email newsletter, check out the different companies in the space. I think angelblock is gonna be that next wave of top tier protocols and crypto companies. So check them out.